Brought to you by JMR Rentals, professional digital cinema and broadcast equipment rentals in Brooklyn, New York. JMRNY.com. And now get 15% off your first rental when you use the promo code WEEKEND. Call 347-721-3400 or email info at JMRNY.com for details. Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend, where we go behind the scenes and talk to the creators of independent entertainment. I'm Jason Godby, and joining me via Zoom today, we first met him on the red carpet of Winter Film Awards. He is the writer-director of Mr. Sister, Mr. Mars Roberge. Welcome, Mars. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. I've been excited to do this with you. It's great to have you, man. Well, we saw you when you were here in New York, but you are no longer in New York. Uh, you're on the left coast now. Mm-hmm. I'm back in Los Angeles. So um, I want to talk about the film. It's a unique film. Uh, we did a review of it on the show, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Bill Hammond uh, talked about it for us, and he said it was really something. Uh, we talked about kind of what you were going for, and I, I want to kind of talk to you about what you were going for. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you about you. So how did you come to filmmaking? Uh, what is your origin story? All right. So, so back in uh, 91, I went to York University Film School, which is I'm from Toronto and it was like the big film school from Toronto at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, when I graduated in 95, uh, the music video industry was booming with much music up there. And it kind of gave us all a, 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 our foot in the door on trying things on film sets using real film, which was expensive back then, the processing and that. And I worked everything from post-production, doing editing, to, to being a, a Yahtzee permit grip on, on commercials and movies. And, you know, I was Jesse Torero's original first AD. He went on to direct like Soul Plane and, and all the 50 Cent music videos. And, you know, uh, the music video industry turned me into what I, I like to think of as a good editor. And uh I got my feet wet and I worked every part of the industry and I, I got burnt out by it and left the industry for about 10 years, uh, hiding at a store in New York City called Patricia Field, where I was a, a wardrobe stylist uh, selling clothes in a store for the, the wardrobe stylist of Sex in the City who won an Emmy for, for all that. And, and while I was there, I was just thinking up my ideas uh, on making more films. And I ended up making a documentary about the store and it got me back into it. And my whole love of uh, the art side of film where I'm not just a crew member, but I'm, I'm seeing my ideas come on the screen. And, you know, uh, Mr. Sister marks my third feature film. And uh, yeah, I just kind of kept running with it once I was making films, moved out to L.A., yeah, it's just been over 10 years now. It's funny that you had that like fashion background because there's a lot of fashion in Mr. Sister. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, uh, for those who missed your interview on the red carpet, tell us a bit about uh, Mr. Sister. Give us a little uh, sort of Hollywood log line action about it. 
Mr. Sister is about a confused, depressed man from Milwaukee who's given a second chance in life, working as a straight drag queen nun MC in New York, where he has to learn the courage from the LGBTQ community to uh, pursue his dreams of being a glam rock singer and pursue a relationship with a single tap dancing mom and uh, accepting his past, you know, and, and facing his demons. So that it's a feel good movie, you know, in, a, in an unusual situation. It's an interesting scenario, and it takes place in sort of an interesting world that you don't see much of anymore. I just kind of wanted to, to, I was, what inspired that? Where did that come from? Was that like, because obviously um, a lot of it takes place in like the drag community, um, and it's a very New York story. Was that kind of a part of your background? Did you know people in that world? Like, where did that come from, basically? Yeah, so, so, you know, I needed a job. And uh, I came from a glam rock music scene in Toronto, lots of makeup and everything. And somehow I got this job at this store, which was the hub for drag queens in all of New York since the 60s called Patricia Field. I was the token straight boy, but I was really good at selling clothes to women, people like Britney Spears and Paris Hilton. I, I gave them their looks because I had a telemarketer experience, which became part of another movie I made called Scumbag. Um, so I was good at selling things and I was involved in fashion sort of by default. Um, but while I worked there, you know, uh, I was at the time I was the depressed kid running away from my past in Toronto. And, uh, you know, all these people that I worked with from Amanda Lepore to, to you know, people that are famous in that that scene, you know, they all kind of took me in as a family and we would do the whole thing where he walked balls in Harlem, like out of the movie Pose, all that stuff. In fact, I was watching Pose last night on TV. And uh, there's a scene where it talks about a transsexual being happy that she got a job at Patricia Field. Like, <laughs> that would have been my life. And as I'm watching the show, I'm seeing one of the cast members as somebody that I worked with in that store. So it's always been there, you know, and I, I look at these people as as human beings and not just, hey, I want that drag queen or, or this and that and I was making these films before the trend is somewhere in the void of oh John Waters hadn't done anything for a decade and I'm making a film and it's before RuPaul's Drag Race got big and stuff so you know I, I I've had my foot in that scene and I made a documentary called The Little House That Could that came out in 2013 all about that store and it had a world premiere at Frameline which is the biggest uh, LGBTQ film festival or the oldest in the world out of San Francisco and uh, you know my next film was a, a, a punk comedy and, and you know I had some elements of, of the drag community but not a lot and by the time I made my third film I just felt like you know my, my skills as a filmmaker I've gotten better uh, my resources I'm no longer shooting films at SD home cameras and going to the 7-Eleven to get uh, tapes to keep filming I'm, I'm shooting an 8k raw with red weapon cameras and the whole deal so I, I said you know what I want to do a film where it's not a documentary but a film about this world just basically saying how how it helped, uh, how it helped me and, and how, how it's a good world to know and how, how, how there is a family within it. And I wanted to show that. And at the same time, uh, a friend of mine who was a, a glam rock singer um, named Brett Smiley had passed in 2016. And, you know, he was produced by the same producer as, as uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, uh, Alan Aldham, Alan Oldham, I believe is his name. And, you know, he was supposed to be the next Bowie for whatever reason, his career fell apart 
and he was chasing that dream for the rest of his life. And when he died, I was like, wow, I need to showcase his music in my movie. So I had the, one of the actors cover it and it, you know, it was a big tribute to him at the end. So I said, I got to show this music and I'm going to write a movie backwards that leads up to that. But I need to also show the caring LGBT community. And I just kind of, I worked backwards and that's how the whole story for Mr. Sister came about. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of interesting elements in it in terms of like the way it's shot. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you had a documentary background. There is a documentary sort of element to it. Um, and you mentioned John Waters. That was the first name that popped in my head. Uh, just when I, seeing some of the footage, I thought, you know, this is, this is like a, this is like a spiritual grandchild to a John Waters film or something like that. And you know, there's people who have made midnight movies before and cult movies, but for the most part, they're not intended to be that way. They sort of, you know, end up that way. Like I don't know what the story is behind Rocky Horror, but I know I don't know if that movie was. I know was, I don't know if that movie was meant to do what it did, and you know, still, it's still shown in midnight showings all over the place, but. So for you, was it that the intention? Was it like, I'm going to make a midnight movie. I'm going to make a, this is going to be a cult film. This is going to be on the shelf of every drag queen in New York City. Like, was that what you were going for? You know, all my films are sort of cult films. One thing I do try to separate myself from is a lot of cult films. And I, I, I'm i going through a whole book of them right now. A friend gave me. A lot of them are pretty bad B-movies. And I'm like, I, you know, my second film played at Rotterdam next to Moonlight, which was the Academy Award winning Best Picture. So what I do uh, relate to with cult films is, is I think why a lot of them have their following and, and a lot of my favorite films might, might fall into that is that they were an original idea that somebody has an inside knowledge of whatever world they're going to talk about. And instead of like uh, sugarcoating it for the mainstream to spell everything out, instead they just like, you're in it with them, you figure out, but this is like, you're, you're going to keep up with this world. I don't need to, to spend time explaining it. You, you're going to jump right into that world. So I did a film that, you know, I wanted the drag community to, to, to go, yeah, this is this is this is real. Uh, I, like like some of my favorite films were like movies like Kids, Kids by Harmony Korine, um, which was happening when I was in film school because it looked like a documentary. If nobody told me, I would have thought all those people were real and that was all happening in Astor Place at some squat house and that I wouldn't have known it was fake. But uh, to me, if I, if I can have people think that my characters are the people, that's that's the, what I want to do. You know, that's, that's how I do it. So if it ends up falling in the cult, uh, yeah, I, I have no problem. Most of my favorite films were cult films. So I think one of the things that's interesting about it is it does have that kind of appeal to it. And also making this this type of film on an indie level, like in terms of the challenges of it, I, one great thing about doing that is if you don't have well-known actors, you, you don't have uh, Timothy Chalamet as your lead. Mm -hmm. but, but mind you, I did reach out to him to play the lead. Uh, got nowhere with the agent. Out of all the people that I reached out like that, like, uh, I don't know, I hate to say it, but uh, Nicolas Cage was almost interested in doing it. I had no budget for him, but, uh, you know, he actually got back to me through his people. But, yeah. I, I wanted to look at that Timothy, actually. It was funny. But, you know, it was a non-union, uh, low-budget movie. And, uh, you know, I was happy with who I got. Sorry to cut you off. No, no. I, I, it's, it's, that stuff's great. But I, I think you turn uh, what could be a negative into a plus because, because we don't know these people from 100 other films or because they're not household industry names, 
we buy them as those people, you know, and it, it does feel like a documentary. We're in this world and we see these people and we don't know them as anything else but who they are. And I think that's a real advantage into, you know, getting an audience to, in, in, in the, getting an audience to suspend their disbelief. Uh, and you shot this in New York. It's a very New York film. What were kind of some of the challenges? Did, would you, were you making this, uh, what was the timeline in terms of like COVID? Was it pre-COVID, post-COVID? Yeah, there were a couple things. So, so we shot this over 12 days leading up to the day before the New York City lockdown. So, so the big challenge was when we got into this, everybody was gung ho. Nobody knew what COVID was by halfway through the production. People started getting scared and uh, locations were backing out of us like the day of shooting uh, leading up to shooting the movie. I lost 13 actors, about 13 within two weeks before shooting in the movie. One of them was the main actor. That wasn't the COVID issue, but I lost, I lost, I had to replace people. So, uh, you know, our main actor, Jack James Busa, who did such a good job, he came on about three days before the movie started. The song he sings at the end of the movie, he had to go in with strangers and record that the day after I gave him the role and and pick out his own clothes and everything. So so it was like uh, those were the big challenges uh, finding like I got used to. Oh, what? Let me see. You're calling me because you're not going to be in the movie. All right. Well, let me see who I have as a backup. And I would you know that that was what was going on or I, I lose the location and uh, and I'm. Instead of like leaving for the day, we walk into another bar a block away and confuse the manager into letting us film a movie there with no money down. Like that's the kind of stuff that we had to do because we were determined by the end. And uh, it also didn't help that we were all getting massive head colds by the end and terrified what was going on. You know, um, we didn't get COVID, but it, we, we were worried, you know. And then like even trying to get back to L.A., uh, one of the big challenges was most of my crew were from L.A. and they have never been to New York City before. So it was like, OK, you're going to be in New York. And I had some interns coming down from my school in Toronto. None of us met each other till we were shooting. And uh, and and I'd have to explain, oh, yeah, you've never been to New York. So this is how you get to here. And we start shooting in an hour. Uh forget how overwhelming it is just meet us there and let's start and that was they got a crash course in new york city over over that time oh and uh you know being on a budget um we, we stayed at our producer kenneth shaw's house in central islip in long island which was about a two-hour drive to uh to manhattan and uh our, our lead actor jumping in last second, his deal was he had to be finished acting by two o'clock in the afternoon every day. So many times we would come home and we'd get about four hours of sleep and have to be up at four in the morning so we could be in Manhattan for six in the morning and, you know, and, 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 and shoot under these time constrictions because we didn't want him to lose his day job and stuff. And, and we made it happen. So, so that was, that was it. And, you know, um, having a, a suburban truck to to be your your entire source for your crew and all your gear. Uh, our, our, our DP had to be very creative with the lights. And luckily today, there's all these lights that look like uh, lightsabers that don't need much space. And we were able to utilize these things and, and go and shoot with asteroids and stuff like that. The film has a very kind of, like I said, a documentary type of look. So 
if it doesn't necessarily look super lit or super stylish, it kind of, it, it's almost like, it, it reminded me of something like, uh, like, uh, uh, John Favreau's first film, uh, when, when he did Swingers, you know, they would shoot in real bars and they would just kind of like go in and replace light bulbs. And it had like this real, you know, uh, run and gun type appeal to it, but that gave it an authenticity it wouldn't have had otherwise. And you have that very like, it, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of handheld camera. You guys use all a, handheld. Yeah, yeah, you guys use a, a lot of like snap zooms and things like that. And it does feel like you're right in there with people when they're in the dressing room talking. It feels like you're just right there next to them. It, you don't feel like doesn't feel like a set. Doesn't feel like stage. And again, I think that's that's all to aid suspension of disbelief in a great way. At this point, you've done a number of festivals. I don't know if you're still doing festivals, but where are you kind of in the festival run, and, and what's the plan going forward? With my past films before that, The Little House That Could and Scumbag, I was playing like 18, 20 film festivals and touring for four years. Uh, this time round, I got my distributor signed on before I even played anywhere, and their deal was, look, play, play a couple and that's it. And, and let's get this out while people are sitting at home during the pandemic so they can watch this thing. Um, I didn't want to play any online film festivals, which meant for a while, almost waiting an extra year because a lot of festivals were getting canceled and that when we came done. So, so we did, we were the closing film for Dances with Films, which was the big LA indie film festival. And then we were the closing film for Winter Film Awards. And, and, and then I, I four-walled it in Toronto, where I'm from. It's, I call it a Canadian American film because half our crew and myself were from Canada and the other half were from America. So, so that said, Arsenal Pictures is going to uh, put this out at the end of this month. And I know this is being broadcast later, but it should be available November 30th of 20. 2021, uh, which is my birthday, <laughs> turning 49 that day, on uh, Vimeo On Demand, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, in the past, I've, I've been with like, you know, I had my film with Freestyle Digital Media and, you know, I was on a lot of platforms and, and you know, I'm trying to bring everybody to one place. We have like, they have their plan on how they want to do this. They want, mainly want to market to the LGBTQ world first and send them to the website to, to go and, and watch it for North America. But as far as uh, other film festivals, you know, I didn't get to have my international premiere and I also see how hard it is to travel. So I didn't want to do too much traveling, but I'm hoping end of February or end of March, we're going to have our international premiere and it's going to happen I shouldn't jinx this, but it's going to happen in either without naming the festival. It's going to happen in either Dublin or London. And I'll, I'll go to that for that. And, and then we'll try to get European distribution at that point. For a film like this, I mean, you have, you have a community of people, which is cool. Like you have, it's like you have a built in audience. Uh, and I'm sure that the distribution company kind of looked at that and said, okay, this is a win. You know, I remember uh, for winter film awards, you had like a line around the block, uh, you yeah, had a full house, that. which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people don't do that at film festivals. I mean, I, I mean, you've been to enough festivals. Mostly it's, it's like you and a bunch of other filmmakers watching your films together. And it's a nice thing. But to get actual bodies and seats of fans is tremendous. So it, that shows it, that has, it has an appeal outside the festival circuit. So that's this project. And then I think you said you're in prep right now for a couple of other things. What, if anything, can you tell me about that? When I was in Dances with Films with Mr. Sister, the people at Dances with Films sent um, sent all the filmmakers, uh, you know, 
They said, enter this contest if you want. You can enter for free. It's been out for a year. It's a pitch contest by a company called We Make Movies, who also have a, a film festival called We Make Movies International Film Festival. Go pitch your idea. And if you win, they'll give you 25 grand to make a movie. So I spent a good year pitching back and forth. And you know, at the time, I had just finished reading my friend's book of plays. Uh, his name's Doran Bromstein, an ex-New Yorker now living in Israel, who used to have a store in the Lower East Side called Apollo Braun. I think it was on Ludlow and Houston or something like that. Um, and I said, look, you want me to pitch your play as a, as a movie? Because I like your play. I'll, I'll turn it into a movie. And he's like, yeah, do whatever you want. So I pitched it. And uh, I won. I was one of the three people that won. Uh, they're making the big announcement in two days from now. Uh, I've been at, being Canadian originally. I'm a dual citizen. I've applied to a million and a half Canadian grants. Uh, I've never gotten a single one. I've given up on these, especially for pre-production and stuff. I'll enter film festivals, but I won't try to get the grants. So I was like, this isn't going to happen. And when it won, I was like, wow, I think it was just really good timing with everything going on. And uh, it's also the first film that I'll ever I'll have ever directed that wasn't written by me from scratch. It was written by somebody else. And it's a serious drama. Most of my films have comedy elements to them. This is a serious drama. The movie's called Stars. It's about a group of homeless women that live in a shelter in New York City that uh, have to learn that uh, more, all, more than all the money in the world, uh, a tiny glimmer of hope is worth more than all the money in the world. And, uh, you know, I've already done my casting for it. Uh, it's crazy because I did my casting not knowing if this was going to happen. So I've got Rod Digga, who's, uh, you know, one of the queens of rap. She was a big rapper in 2000, used to do duets with Lil' Kim. And she was from Busta Rhymes Group. And she was in a movie called, I think it was called 13 Ghosts, some $45 million movie back in the day. So I've got her. She's our big name. Uh, Deborah Hayden, who's, you know, she's been this, one of the support stars of, of Scumbag and Mr. Sister. I got the famous transsexual, uh, Sophia Lamar, punk woman, you know, um, going to be in the movie. And, you know, I'm in talks with a, a few others. I'm carrying some people from Mr. Sister onto this. I try to carry people from my other films. It's getting to the point right now. I have an acting, uh, what do you call it? Casting call on, on Breakdown Express as of today. And I don't even know if I'm going to be using anybody because I have so many actors from my last films, you know, that I can pick from, which is, is nice. So and uh, yeah, we're, we're the same crew as Mr. Sister. And we're going to be shooting it in New York City, um, March 1st to the 10th. So a 10 day shoot feature film. This one's going to be shot in black and white like the movie Roma. It's scored by Michael Cashmore from the band Current 93. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. Also, as that's happening, I'm making a biopic on these these guys, the world famous Supreme team. They were probably the first one of the first rappers. They're so they're so old school. They make Run DMC look like little kids. Um, <laughs> they were managed by Malcolm McLaren, the same person that managed the Sex Pistols, except they were the ones who made the money. Malcolm McLaren didn't he? They exploited him. Um, and there's just a whole great story uh, that's never been talked about and it's being uh, funded. My executive producer is Freeway Rick Ross. If you Google him, you'll know who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the rapper. I'm talking about the person they've made movies about Rick Ross. Uh, he's who's funding this film. And uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. That film, it's going to take me a bit longer because it's a life story and we're still writing it with the subject back and forth, but I expect to shoot that film in 20, 
23. So in ideal world, I'll be shooting a movie in New York every year for the next couple of years, uh, probably in March each year. So that movie, it's a, it's like a music biopic. It's not a documentary. It's a, it, yeah, it's a music biopic with people playing them. Oh, very uh, cool. And, and we're still like, they're throwing around numbers. If this is going to be a big budget picture, or we're going to go and shoot it for 40 grand, you know, but, uh, it will be one or the other. And, and, you know, um, going with what you were saying, asking about earlier about using unknowns, uh, a lot of my, uh, cast, I, I take from the music industry that have followings or they're up and coming music artists. And that's, that's where I, I, I get a lot of my inspiration from and, and usually they're cool people. And, you know, it takes a bit of acting to be on a stage and being a leader of a, of a band or whatever. So, so, you know, always, all my films so far have somebody from the music industry playing something like, like in Mr. Sister, uh, I gave uh, Jim Sclavunos his first break acting and he's, uh, he's the percussionist of Nick Cave in the Bad Suit. So they'll sell out stadiums all around the world, but he's never acted before. And, you know, he flew out to be in it. So it was a cool thing. For people who want to know more about uh, where to find Mr. Sister and uh, want to know more about you and your production company, where can they find you guys on the web? I have a production company called World Domination Pictures, and you can go to worlddomination.pictures. I found that dot pictures is like a dot com these days. And uh, I'm always posting what we're doing. Uh, follow me on social media, Mars Roberge, M-A-R-S-R-O-B-E-R-G-E. Uh, for Mr. Sister, you know, uh, Mr. Sister NYC. That's the website. That's the social media. Very cool, man. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for doing this. And thank you all out there for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. For more of our content, you can always find it on our website, norestoftheweekendpodcast.com. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And now you can subscribe to us on YouTube, youtube.com slash getbehindtherabbit. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Mars Roberge, and our sponsor, JMR Rentals. For Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.